Growing your business is tough, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We interview industry experts on how they've solved their most challenging business problems in SaaS or e-commerce. No fluff, just step-by-step playbooks to help you dominate your market and crush the competition. This is the How We Solve podcast. Here's your host. All right, welcome to another How We Solve podcast. Excited to do one again, and I'm really excited about the topic and the guest today. We are talking about ADHD. I have a lot of friends who are dealing with this. I know a lot of entrepreneurs are dealing with this. And we're talking to Aaron Croft today, who is an expert on the topic. Let me give you his backstory. Aaron appeared to have it all figured out when he got into Harvard, but this was the beginning of his demise. He struggled nonstop for 15 years until he was broke, divorced, earning minimum wage and dropping off the first seven jobs and businesses that he got into. But after a master's degree in coaching psychology and the diagnosis of inattentive ADHD, his life changed completely. And he built a very successful career working with Fortune 500 companies like Marriott, Deloitte, Johnson Johnson, McDonald's, KPMG, etc. And he's also remarried. And most importantly, he discovered how to get shit done, even though dealing with a neurodivergent brain. And this is what we'll talk about today to give you the tools, even if you have ADHD, that you can be productive for if you work with somebody, a business partner or an employee, that you can help them to be productive and be in the A-game and overcome this condition and turning it into a superpower. So very excited to have you on the show, Aaron. Thank you, David. I'm super excited to be here. Really appreciate the invite. And I think it's so funny what you said um, about knowing people who struggle with this because it's almost like this secret in the entrepreneurial community. I've got clients who have raised millions of dollars out in Silicon Valley from both coasts, all entrepreneurs. And I think I've got this thing and I think a bunch of my friends do too. Interesting, the self-discovery, what led me on this journey on having guests talking about different minds on this show is I found out that I have aphantasia, which is a condition where I cannot create images, sounds, tastes, smells, and also cannot recreate the emotions in my mind. I found out like maybe a little less than a year ago, like the big wow moment where like everybody perceives the world so differently. And if you understand, help people understand how they tick and learn how you operate, you can turn your disadvantages into superpowers. So this led me on this journey and I've had business partners with ADHD and have a lot of good friends, entrepreneurs with ADHD. And so I'm super excited to, to drill in and maybe we start with the definition of ADHD so people can kind of self-diagnose if they have it or not. I think here's the first thing that I would say. If we asked all your listeners right now, if they were on the live stream typing in comments, but if we asked all your listeners, what's the first thing that you think of when you hear the term ADHD? Like, What's the first image that pops into your mind? 99% of people are going to either have the dog and squirt, right? Or like <laughs> five-year-old boys like wreaking havoc, like throwing paint on the wall or something, just going crazy. And that is one aspect of ADHD. So that would be like the hyperactive impulsive symptoms. But then there's a whole other side of the spectrum, which is the side that I really have represented and served, which is the inattentive side of the spectrum. And then some lucky people get both. So that's combined type. The hyperactive impulsive is what most stereotypes are, right? Super high energy, like driven by a motor, often just might talk without thinking, kind of impulsive, maybe risk-taking, all these things. But then on the inattentive side, and this is where things get really confusing for a lot of people, because most people don't make the distinction on the inattentive side, it's all the things like just 
can't really get yourself to work on what you want to work on. Like you want to work on it, but you can't get yourself to, and you're easily distracted and you just can't focus on like difficult, boring, or otherwise like concentration tasks and easily forgetful. So there's come out of that whole side of it. But when you don't have the hyperactive symptoms, you're not really disruptive and you don't really get noticed. Like people just think you're a slacker or people just think that you're like lazy or unmotivated when you're not doing crap in school or you're not doing things in your profession. How did you distinguish like, hey, I actually have something that's different in my mind or with this person? Is he just lazy or does he have this condition? Best case is physician or mental health professional. They've got the whole diagnostics. But there is a self-screening tool that people can use as a starting point. I can share a link that people could go. And it's basically like, if you've scored, if you rated your, like, you just fill it out, eight questions, and then it just gives you a, like, you might want to check this out, or maybe you shouldn't. Because it all comes down, David, to severity. Everybody procrastinates sometimes. Everybody is forgetful sometimes. Everybody's easily distracted sometimes. Everyone's impulsive sometimes. Everyone's full of energy sometimes. It's just the... The severity and the controllability and how much it impacts your life. It would also be great if you could dig into like, how do you control it? I think even if you if you don't have ADHD, you could probably still use these tools because, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're, we're all the same and we all lose focus from time to time and we procrastinate. How do you manage your ADHD? For me, the biggest issue is productivity, like not being able to follow through on what I want to. And what's interesting is when I was doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, I've stopped unless like five, unless like people want to commit to six months and pay ungodly fees. But when I was doing it, I was like, I thought I was going to get people all over the board with ADHD, different goals. And like nine out of 10 clients was the exact same thing. I have this thing that I desperately want to do with all of my heart and soul. And I just literally can't get myself to do it. And so for me and them, the number one thing in managing ADHD is just learning how to really do the things that we want to do. And so I teach people like a really concise system for, okay, great. The neurotypical standard systems don't work. But to your point, David, I think that neurotypicals or other people that don't suffer from ADHD, they could use this stuff and it would be rocket fuel. A lot of times they don't have the motivation to necessarily use it. I'm very curious to learn because I'm a productivity nerd and geek and I have all these tools and systems and processes that I'm using to keep myself on my personal A-game, you know, from habit tracking to like planning my day, etc. So I'm, I'm very curious to, to learn from you. All right. So what I found is you need three things. You want to be consistent and that's really hard for people with ADHD. And so I cover three things to make that happen and I can dive into any of these with you. The second is you need to avoid overwhelms. One thing that's very common with ADHD years is just this some level of anxiety and overwhelm and it could just be analysis paralysis or it could be true overwhelm, but it really screws them up. And then third is you need to motivate yourself continually and the motivation pathways in ADHD brains because dopamine drives motivation and dopamine is the neurotransmitter that's noticed within ADHD to not function the normal way. Our ability to motivate ourselves, even when we want desperately to do something, it doesn't translate. I read an article somewhere, someone called it erectile dysfunction of the mind. The desire to be there, but like the ability to get your brain to engage isn't. And yeah. 
let's, let's go through it in terms of consistency. Because you just mentioned that we have a mutual friend and your accountability buddies. This is yes. like something that I personally love having like the positive peer pressure is something that I've seen working really well. Also, UpCoach is one of my businesses. It's a platform for coaches to run their coaching business better. I uh, built it for cohort-based coaching and the accountability and positive peer pressure are like key things of the system. And this is also what, what the customers really like. So in terms of the consistency, let's touch upon all three buckets that you have. From the consistency standpoint, you already mostly alluded to it. The main point that I always stress with people and Teresa Amabile at Harvard Business School has really found that the most motivating thing there is, is progress. We need to see progress. And what most people do is they set these really crazy goals. I'm going to work out six days a week and only eat vegetables. And then they only work out four days a week and eat one carb and they feel like they've failed. We want to instead go for, I don't know who this quote's from. I heard it from Nir Eyal, the author of Indistractable and Hooked, but he said, consistency over intensity. And most people prioritize intensity. It's a little bit of the Tony Robbins school of things, take massive action to your goal, which is fine if you're good at doing that. But many people with distraction challenges or ADHD-like symptoms aren't. And so I always just stress consistency over intensity because when we feel like we're winning, it feels good to keep winning. When we feel like we're losing, we want to sit our ass on the couch and watch TV. It's also kind of the Kaizen methodology to kind of break things down to smaller digestible chunks. I think that's also something that helped me tremendously not to get overwhelmed and just have this consistent wins and just like knocking off. There's nothing that feels so good as taking stuff off on your to-do list. Yeah, it's so true. And people underestimate the cycles that we get in. And there's a concept in psychology called self-signaling where we actually evaluate ourselves like we do another, an external person. So we're like, oh, Aaron said he'd do that thing and he didn't do it. Huh? Aaron's like not very reliable. One of my business partners, he's like the biggest fan of Kaizen because he likes to break things down because he feels like garbage if he does not, if he sets out to do something and he doesn't do it, like it completely falls apart. He completely falls apart. Also having me as an accountability buddy to help him to stay on track, to kind of plan, stay, plan this week and kind of like motivate him, keep it on the rails if something does not go as planned. He actually was never diagnosed with it. I don't know if he has it. He always labels it under perfectionism that he's like a extreme perfectionist that this is kind of like so yeah i'm curious you know who you are you're going to be tested we're going to call out our accountability buddies so this one here is get addicted to achievement dopamine and so dr anna lemke in dopamine nation just talks about how like our dopamine receptors are so overstimulated in today's world and what happens when something is overstimulated or obviously, I guess we can stick with the erectile dysfunction of the mind and kind of go to the bedroom, but we could also just overstimulate it. If you eat something super spicy or really tangy and sweet, like you can't really tailor down into something more like a subtle champagne or oyster or something. And what she says really is that's actually what keeps us from being able to do the things that most fulfill us. And this is a huge problem in the ADHD community. It's a huge problem for me. But the short answer is that if we want to get the dopamine from achievement back to the progress principle, we need to calm down our dopamine sensors with all of the artificial inputs because like any drug, we develop a tolerance. And so the dopamine that we get from these activities can't compete with the artificial dopamine of Sour Patch Kids and TV and, you know, social media. 
Okay, so how do we dial it down? My favorite method for dialing stuff down is basically just the don't use willpower. So just make it harder to do. James Clear talks about this in Atomic Habits. I take down my TV during the week, just so I'm not even tempted to watch it. Make the good things easy and the hard things harder. Taking all of the batteries out of the remote or like in positive sense, put your running shoes out when you go to bed or something that helped me is not to leave. Actually, we, we don't buy any junk food anymore. Me neither. So I just made it much, much easier. Yeah, you hit it perfectly. And that's honestly it is just identify some of these artificial dopamine sources that are blowing up your mind and you just find ways to make them harder to do. And so you're not using willpower, right? David and I aren't <laughs> using willpower tonight. Junk food is just not in a freaking house. So it's a simple choice. And so it's really the same there. But once you open up the Twitterverse, good luck trying to get back and do some focused deep work. And once you're in reactive mode, it's really hard for ADHDers to put the genie back in the bottle. I personally have a not to-do list. And one of the things is before I get up in the morning and I do my yoga routine and my planning the day, etc., I don't look at my Slack email or basically social media. So I don't get sucked into the vortex. But if I take it from laying in bed and I just look at it, I kind of scroll or I'm on Slack for an hour and a half, not getting out of bed. No, it's so good. And one of the things I had to do, because I'm in the same boat, is I had to set a do not disturb auto schedule on my phone. Because I know that if I even, I do look at my phone in the morning, I know that I'll just, if I look and I can see it, I'll do it. And I also have them like away, like a few screens off my home screen because I have very little self-control. But yeah, the idea that even if we look at our day, and this has been transformational for me as a business, as an entrepreneur, but also actually it was transformational as a corporate employee. And it's phenomenal with ADHD because we tend to have really big strengths and really big weaknesses, like our amplitude on both is higher. And what I found was if we, if I looked at my entire day, there's certain times where I'm doing $10 an hour tasks. And there's other times where I'm doing $1,000 an hour tasks. And if I could find the $1,000 hour tasks where I'm adding a crap ton of value and I enjoy doing, like then life and business just get easy. Your new zone of genius. Yeah, I love this exercise. Like next to my to-do list stuff, I haven't done it in a while, but I do it from time to time to really write down this is a $10, $100, $1,000, $10,000 an hour task and do everything humanly possible to remove all the $10 and $100 an hour tasks to hire somebody who does it. Most of the time, it's also these are tasks that I don't really enjoy doing and has been working really well. I have a portfolio of businesses and I always manage myself out of the businesses. Some the business basically runs by itself. And this has been like a really powerful tool to reflect like how much value does this task actually bring? And can I hire somebody who does this task? Yeah. Where's this from, by the way? Where's what from? The $10, $100 an hour. Oh, I think Perry Marshall. I heard him on a podcast. And it's just those random places where you hear someone on a podcast and you're like, that is a phenomenal idea. So he wrote a book called 8020 Sales and Marketing. And I wasn't in sales and marketing at the time, but his logic, it just ended up somehow on my feet. It was like so good. And he basically just said that 20% of your tasks are, were, are responsible for 80% of your revenue. And so at that time I was in the corporate world and I went through all the crap I was doing and I started putting a dollar value next to it or an estimate or a high, medium, low. And I was like, huh, there's actually very little value in me being responsive on instant message. 
There's a ton of value in me creating things, in me leading meetings, running projects, and playing that coordination leadership role. And so I got really crappy at responding to IM. Sorry, colleagues. But I got really affected at my job. It's also kind of like controlling your environment. If you have these distractions with like Slack messages popping up, etc., you can't really get stuff done. Something that has been working well is to have, I love time boxing. So like the time when I respond to my email or the time that I respond to DMs, or if you work with lots of people, you can have office hours that your colleagues know, okay, you'll be there in the morning for the stand-up and then you have two more times where they can ping you, where you get back to them right away. If it's urgent, they can give you a call. My wife and I figured this out in my, my last business. I was always having fights with her because I was like always in Slack. Business was growing fast, was like very hectic. So I was like mentally never really at home because I always thought, oh, we're going to miss something. The world's going to blow up and I have to be responsive. So we figured that we got a home phone so I can put my phone on charge and mute it and give people in the business my home phone number so they can call in case something go south and the phone never rang but like before i was like always had this mindset like oh i gotta be omnipresent all the time it helped me tremendously and it made my wife happy so win-win i love that do you want me to quickly hop into this so for listeners i've got the circadian rhythm graph on the screen and i've got daniel pink's new york times bestseller win up there and he covers it really well but so for me i didn't go through the bites of dis discomfort bit but like my confession that I share with people, even though I've been told I shouldn't, is that like, I hate discomfort. I refuse to use willpower to do crap I don't want to do or that I even that I should do. And it's very invalidating in some ways because hustle culture, Gary Vaynerchuk, Jocko Willing, all this stuff like Ben Horowitz, any of these people, it's if you're not willing to put in the hard yards or like you can't be successful and I'm stubborn. So I'm like, I'm going to figure this out. And so one of the key things, and this really goes to what you talked about in your morning, is figuring out when your chronobiological peak is and doing your hard tasks then. And all of a sudden, the hard tasks aren't that hard. A lot of people waste their biological peak and they spend it on meetings or they spend it on emails or they spend it on random stuff. And they're missing this window in their day where hard stuff becomes easy. And I don't do hard stuff the rest of the day. I have meetings, I do emails, I take care of administrative tasks, but I crush my hard stuff in the biological peak. And it's one of the reasons that my business has grown really quickly in a short period of time. Yeah, it's a really important point that thyself kind of really know how you, when you operate best, what's the best thing for you. For example, I always have towards the end of the day, I don't do much focus work anymore at the end of the week because I'm usually burned out at the end of the week. But I just do a lot of like, I can be like sounding board or calls or one-on-ones and stuff like this. This is like works really well, but digging in deep doesn't work that well anymore. That's a really good point. Hey man, I love that. Yeah, and I've found that as well. So even my Friday Chronobiological peak in deep work time is just difficult admin because I'm so useless by Fridays in terms of like <laughs> hard creative work. I think you're on board with the last one. Are you a deep work fan, David? I haven't read it. I know the concept, but I haven't read the book. Actually, I'll take a note. Take a note. It's, it's definitely in my top five. It's actually so when people join my Productivity Transformation Academy, I make it require reading. Actually, let me clarify. I make a 20-minute summary video required because ADHDers tend to have trouble reading whole books. But the concept underpins a lot of how we can 
the, the title of this episode, how we can work less and be more productive. And that's, again, for someone who doesn't like discomfort. And while the lazy label that I got growing up with undiagnosed ADHD might not have been accurate, <clears throat> I still self-identify as someone who's lazy. And, but in a positive way, right? Google, someone at Google senior leadership had that quote, like, I love to hire lazy engineers because they find creative solutions. They don't, they find really efficient solutions. And deep work is one of those optimizing efficient solutions to get away with doing a lot less. We want to shape our environment and have our environment lead to our success. And one of the things is people with ADHD, but, or just people that somewhere maybe off the spectrum, but can relate. What they'll end up with is they don't follow through on stuff until there's some level of deadlines approaching. There's some level mm -hmm. of urgency. Someone else is expecting it and there's some consequence or reward for doing it. Like Please. I'm going to get an F. I might get fired. My wife is going to be pissed at me. And then I always ask people to, okay, great. Now that you see that and everyone's like, yeah, I see that. Look at your personal goals and how many of those things show up. And they're like, uh zero or one, maybe like, okay. So the reason you can't get motivated in your personal goals is you just need to take what works in getting you into action, but stop doing it for everyone else's goals. Cause that's, what's making you miserable, right? You're just in this reactive mode, living your life because Joe asked for something and sent you a text and yelled at you and said, can you do this thing for me? But if we don't have anything on that, then we wonder why we can't follow through on those things that are really important to us. And so again, this kind of goes to you and I both share this. Let's just find the hacks. Let's find the ways to get our brain to do what we want it to do and go from there. A friend of mine, she's starting her business and I want to hold her accountable. And there's like the service of, it's called stick, but I forgot how it's spelled. Yep. Basically you commit money, you wire money to this organization. And if you don't do what you set out to do, they will send it to a cause that you don't like. So like the opposing political party or something that you hate. So you have this extra motivation that this will not happen. So just like find the hacks that work for you, yourself and find accountability bodies, find ways that you force yourself into doing the stuff that you want to do to not procrastinate. So Tanya just asked, do you have routines to reward yourself when you're productive? So the short answer is that I've got this graph on the screen for those of you who are listening to it. And what it really shows is what it happens when we're building a new behavior. And when we're building a new behavior, whether it's learning a new language or an instrument or driving or tying our shoes, at first our effort is really high and our results are really low. This continues for a number of weeks, whether it's two weeks or six weeks or eight weeks. And this differential where the results are greater than the effort is really hard to stay motivated and definitely almost impossible for ADHD brains. But what happens is once you hit a crossover point and maybe it's four weeks, maybe it's six weeks where the results exceed the effort, all of a sudden the habit becomes self-sustaining. The behavior becomes self-sustaining. So the long-winded answer to your question, Tanya, is I have a system to reward myself to get to a crossover point when establishing a new habit. And so I hmm. built a habit of daily consistent productivity, which this whole three-step framework that I shared here is basically the entire system. And it's all about how do we get past the crossover point? And I literally throw the freaking kitchen sink at it. 
That's why we have rewards. That's why we have community influence. That's why we have accountability buddies. That's why we have status visible. That's why we have deep work. That's why we have distractions going away. That's why we turn down artificial dopamine lights. We do it all like sequentially in tiny bites as a community. So it's manageable. So you have to use stuff until you get to sustainability. And a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that if they do something to get to sustainability, they're going to do it for your whole life. And I had a therapist say, look, if you need to motivate yourself, in my case, I don't have eating disorder. So if you have an eating disorder, don't use food. But if ice cream is going to motivate you to follow through on this habit, you're not eating ice cream at nine in the morning for the rest of your life. You're just eating it until this habit's self-sustaining. And it was like one of the most revolutionary things anyone ever told me. Something that I have is the opposite. Basically, I have an early warning signal when I'm falling off my good habits, which is for me, it's inbox zero. If I'm not reaching inbox zero, for those of you who don't know inbox zero, like at the end of the day, you're supposed to archive everything in your inbox. You only have like open to do's in your inbox, like delegate everything or get it done. So if I'm not reaching inbox zero for over a week, I know I have too much on my plate and I got to reconsider and figure out, like we move stuff around because otherwise I'll be miserable. I'll, I'll get into this negative spiral of not feeling good about getting shit done. And so my canary in the coal mine is, is inbox zero. And when I get to this, I have a restart routine. So when I feel like overwhelmed, when I'm in the state of not getting stuff done, I do a self-care day. And this can mean, you know, I go to a barber, I go get a massage, I buy some stuff, like whatever. Do something that I usually don't do for myself. And this kind of gives me, I don't know, the mental energy, whatever, to say, like, okay, from tomorrow on or tonight, we're just going to hammer this stuff away. We're going to get back on a good behavior and we stick to good habits again. You know, this kind of has been working for me for many years to have this kickstart that helps me to get back on my good behavior. Whoa, dude, David. All right, you and I are going to have to like talk again at some point in the future, either live or, or just offline because you are a productivity nerd. And I just love that truth bomb you just shared right there. I even wrote it down. And you called it the canary in the coal mine, which I actually like that. I wrote it down tripwire because that's what Chip and Dan Thief called it in the book Decisive. But setting an intentional thing to flag, because we all fall off it. And I'm terrible. I mean, I told you I have very little self-control. Like I fall off my crap all the time, but I don't have a canary set up to identify when it is. It's just usually, oh, I feel like crap. I need to tighten it up. So thank you. Aaron said, Tanya, great question. And the other question is whether you reward yourself or create a trap that hurts if you don't accomplish what you said. So. Because we touched upon a few of things already, having the trap that you wire money to somebody who holds you accountable that you actually do it or not, or having the canary in the coal mine. Anything you want to add? What Nir Eyal shares as his version in his book, Indistractable, is he calls it the burn or burn challenge. So he has a calendar up on the wall and he tapes, he has a $100 bill taped to it. And he moves the $100 bill every single day and what he does, so the short answer to your question, Aaron, I'm a huge fan of having consequences that are motivating, but not overwhelming and low criteria for success, low hurdles. Like I love winning a hundred percent of the time and then anything else is a bonus. And so what he does is he has the same thing. He has a low hurdle. He can just do 10 push-ups or like 10 air squats or something, but it's a reminder to him or. If he doesn't do anything, he can burn. So he can either burn the calories or he can burn the $100 bill. So that's why it's the burn or burn. And he's just been like consistent every single day for, you know, 
years because it's like, ah, I don't really want to burn a hundred dollar bill or I drop the floor and hit 10 pushups. That's good. Also like kind of anchoring with, with habits, like from tiny habits. He did this thing. Every time he goes to the restroom, he does 10 push-ups, like to anchor, anchor these things to, to stick to good behavior. But any other things you, you want to drill in? I, I think just the last point, and I think you already alluded to this, although we haven't fully alluded to it. The last point in the model is use community influence. And I've got there a quote up from James Clear and Atomic Habits, that one of the most effective things you could do to build better habits is to join a culture where one, your desired behavior is the normal behavior, and two, you already have something in common with the group. It's also the second part of Dr. Sean Young's uh, model and his great book, Stick With It. And I'm a huge fan of surrounding myself with other people who motivate me because like, I'm so impressionable. I'm just so influenced by the people around me that if I intentionally put myself around people that have the desired behaviors that I want to or are working towards the same desired behaviors, then like my behavior just shows up naturally in that way. Oh, for sure. I think you're the average of the five people that you surround yourself with. And this is like in terms of fitness level, in terms of bank account, in terms of happiness level, in terms of kind of like everything, because we're social animals. If we go running and you're like a little fitter than me and you always run a little faster than me, I'll speed up and I'll, I'll catch up to you and we average out. If I'm, I just overeat all the time and kind of drag you into restaurants, you will also gain weight. You are who you surround yourself with and it's harsh, but you know, even old friends, if they, if they drag you down, you know, if they're not in line with like where you want to go, like reevaluate, hang out with smart people, like always be the dumbest person at the table. You know, it's kind of like the table that you want to sit at, be the smartest person at the table. It doesn't have to be in all areas, but like definitely certain islands. You want to hang out with people that help you to grow and keep accountable and have been there, done that, or a few levels ahead from where you are. So let me ask you, David, how do you put this into place, like in practicality in your life? Are there certain groups that you've joined or how do you surround yourself with positive influences? I love peer learning. So I'm in a bunch of entrepreneurial groups and we also organize a few masterminds ourselves. You know, so we kind of get together on a regular basis and we meet usually like twice a year, at least with these groups. The in-person ones online, we have a few that, that meet every, every month. And we share what's going really well right now, where we struggle with and hold, hold each other accountable to until we meet next time. I'm planning on doing X, Y, Z. And then when next time comes around, you want to not be the person who has positive peer pressure. You don't want to be the one who's not achieving his goals. He's, you don't want to be the one who's not doing his own work. And this is how, what has been working really well for me. I love it. I always love surrounding myself. I make intentionality to always do that as well. This was really awesome, Aaron. I really enjoyed the conversation with you. How can people find you? You mentioned it before, but kind of maybe your, your social channels, if people want to get in touch with you. I would just say Google hidden ADHD, and then that way you can engage with your platform of choice. So there's like over 100,000 followers on TikTok and a lot on YouTube and such. Or you can go to our website, just Google hidden ADHD and you will find me. And then, yeah, and then I think what I mentioned earlier is this framework. I used it for myself and that's kind of how I went from underperforming to like overperforming and then able to quit my corporate job and do this full time. But I started teaching it to other people. I said, how can I just make like a ready-made system? You don't need to be an expert on all these things. I'll just build it in. So like we literally, we have transparency and accountability, but it's pretty much all ADHDers or people that think they have ADHD. And it's like a six-week program and like people are in little teams. And so they get some social connection and influence. And 
we do rewards menus, we do all these little things and like we cover deep work, we turn down an artificial dopamine, you know, source, we do all these things as a group. All everyone does is one tough task every single day towards their one goal that they're focused on. So it's like laser, but it's just that consistency over intensity. And it's like full handholding because again, I'm lazy. So I built the program <laughs> I would have wanted. Awesome. Thank you very much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, dude, this was an honor, a pleasure. And for me, you're fulfilling my goal of spending time around people who have achieved things I want. I really admire your business success. I admire your networking prowess. I admire your productivity, all those things. And so this is a true honor and a privilege. So thank you so much for including me. Thank you very much. And please leave us feedback on the podcast. It really helps us to be found in the Google Play Store. So please go there if you like this episode. Sign up, search for the How We Solve show. See you in the next one. Is your e-commerce growing so fast that you can't keep up with supporting your customers in real time? Serve them better in any time zone and language. They will thank you with higher conversion rates and repeat purchases. We build and manage your own dedicated customer experience team of live chat and support agents. Get started today. Visit ltvplus.com. That's ltvplus.com. Thanks for listening to the How We Solve podcast. Dominate your market and crush the competition with our step-by-step playbooks. Subscribe right now in your favorite podcast player or visit howwesolve.com.